0: SNAP Production. Hey, welcome to the briefing. It's Wednesday, the 20th of October. I'm Tom Tilley, and there are two words you're gonna hear a lot of in the news over the next few weeks. And in fact, you've already been hearing these two words a lot. The Prime Minister is expected to push ahead with a plan for net zero emissions. Show the rest of the world that we're serious about getting to net zero. Net zero. Net zero.
1: Net zero by 2050.
0: Net zero, yes. As we head into the Glasgow Climate Summit in under two weeks now, all the world leaders will be talking about getting to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Here in Australia, you will have already heard on the briefing over the last week, the Nationals and the Liberal Party are debating a net zero policy and whether they support it. But do you actually know what it means?
2: It means that we reach a point where any residual emissions that we make of greenhouse gases... CO2 from agriculture or something like that, that's just really hard to get out. We balance that by drawing down CO2 from the atmosphere, by growing more forests or storing it in the soil or things like this.
0: Yeah, we're going to explain what net zero actually means. That is our briefing for today. First, Katrina Blaus joins us for today's headlines.
3: Well, the mother of the missing West Australian toddler, Cleo Smith, has spoken out about the moment they realised their daughter was missing. The tent was completely um, open. It was about 30 centimetres from being open and I turned around to Jake and I just said, like, Cleo's gone.
0: It's such a sad story. That's Ellie Smith speaking there alongside her partner, Jake. Um, She was describing the moment they woke up on Saturday morning to find four-year-old Cleo missing from their campsite in WA's northern Gascoyne region.
3: So a land and sea search underway since Saturday is expected to get back on track today. There was a delay yesterday because of bad weather around the coastal campsite. So I was having a look online at um, that area. It is so beautiful but also completely desolate. Um, it's an area known for the blowholes. It's near wow. the town of Carnarvon. There's As well as the camping site, there's a whole bunch of beach shacks there. So they've asked all the owners of those shacks to return their keys so that they can search those shacks. And um, I guess there are fears too that Cleo might have been abducted
0: And Western Australian Premier Mark McGowan has broken hearts saying he won't be opening up for travellers from New South Wales, Victoria and ACT in time for Christmas.
2: But I don't want to set dates that subsequently change. I want to have some certainty about what is going on. We will be opening the border sometime next year.
3: So sorry for everyone else in Australia, but the Premier has said that WA will open to Queensland, but it actually won't be following the Sunshine State in allowing quarantine-free arrivals from COVID-hit states before Christmas.
0: Yeah, so you guys in Queensland had the big announcement this week that uh, probably, mm. um, depending on vaccination rates, but probably a week before Christmas will be allowed to come into Queensland.
3: Yeah, December 17 is the big date, uh, which is great. It's a couple of days before my birthday, so I'm nice. hoping i will have a big party. Uh, McGowan said that opening to arrivals from eastern states, even if they are fully vaxxed, would mean adopting COVID control measures, which would hurt the economy in the lead up to Christmas. McGowan's saying that he doesn't want to introduce mask mandates for for restaurants for Christmas lunch. His state doesn't rely on interstate travellers from New South Wales and Victoria as much as Queensland does at that time of year. He also doesn't want to be imposing limits on people um, as to how many guests they can have in their household for Christmas Day.
0: Yeah, well, he's going to ruin Christmas for a lot of people who have sort of interstate families, but I guess a lockdown would also ruin Christmas. So it is tricky. I mean, surely you would have thought by the time they hit 80%, though, they would have found a way to get people a- across that border. Um, next yeah. year, like, it'll be two years since the pandemic started. They basically had a closed border. Um, you have to wonder, what, what what's the real plan here? What's the real ob- objective? And how much longer can they keep going like this?
3: Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews, meanwhile, has warned unvaccinated people in the state won't be granted special freedoms there until later next year.
1: The Grand Prix is in April. I don't think there's going to be crowds at the Grand Prix made up of people who have not been double dosed.
0: That's Dan Andrews taking his classic hardline stance. Um, The decision puts Victoria at odds with New South Wales, which promised anyone still unvaccinated by December 1 this year. Um, will no longer have to conform to lockdown restrictions.
3: And how about this? Andrews has thrown down the gauntlet to tennis star Novak Djokovic. He says that Djokovic will likely be locked out of the state for the Australian Open in January. Uh, This is because the world number one has refused to kind of confirm publicly whether or not he's been double dosed. Um, However, he has still been able to play in tournaments, you know, like the French Open and Wimbledon and the US Open, but might not be able to play at the Oz Open.
0: Yeah, I wonder what this does for our international reputation that, you know, all the other three Grand Slams will allow unvaccinated players. Obviously, I imagine, you know, needing regular COVID tests to prove that they don't mm-hmm. have it and they're not a risk to other players. You've got Daniel Andrews, two years out, not letting, you know, unvaccinated people at the Grand Prix. You've got Mark McGowan keeping borders completely closed Until 2023. And, you know, we've had Ted Cruz, a Republican centre, sort of highlighting Australia um, being anti freedom this week and obviously copying a bit of backlash from Michael Gunner, the Northern Territory Chief Minister. But, this has got to be affecting our international reputation.
3: Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because politicians in Queensland and WA have both been pointing to the Singapore example as um, as an example of what happens when you open up too soon. They say that, you know, Singapore opened up at 80%, double vaxxed, and has had to pause some of its reopening measures. And, uh, you know, kids have had to go back to uh, learning from home mm. and people have had to go back to working from home because case numbers have spiked again, even at 80
0: yeah, but that seems like a bit of an exaggeration on on what's really happened in Singapore. It's not like they've gone back into lockdown. Like these are some of the measures that people may expect may be brought back in along the way. You know, two people dining together, as you say, homeschooling, um, working from home. They, they say they're still on a pathway to be COVID resilient. And they're nearly at the end of those four-week restrictions. Plus, they're opening to international travel in Singapore to 10 other countries. So yeah. I, I don't see that as a starkly bad example to avoid.
3: And I guess it's interesting, isn't it, that the only politicians in the country who are really, you know, talking about that Singapore what example about Singapore? are in WA <laughs> yeah. and Queensland, where I guess those measures compared to what we have now are a backward step, mm. whereas for New South Wales and Victoria, you guys would be like, that's totally fine, bring it on. Yeah. <laughs>
0: A vote on assisted dying has been delayed until next year, and that's in New South Wales, which is the last state to move on this big reform. This bill
1: has been through detailed consultations with experts and is consistent with legislation in every other uh, state in Australia. It's time that the parliament was able to debate this issue and resolve the matter.
0: That was Alex Greenwich. He's the independent MP who introduced the bill uh, last week. Um, We interviewed him a little while ago here on the briefing about that. The state Liberal government yesterday sided with Labor to have the bill sent to a parliamentary inquiry before it can be passed into law. So um, that'll report back in February and then we'll have a vote and see if New South Wales will join the rest of the country on assisted dying.
3: And what about this for what could be the tourism coup of the year? Residents in the rural New South Wales town of Cowra are considering building a big Chris Hemsworth statue Hmm. after the Hollywood star agreed to promote the town. Yeah, so the
0: town's tourism leaders said they were actually surprised that the Hollywood actor had agreed to visit and act as an ambassador for the town following their Get Chris to Cowra campaign, which has clearly worked.
3: (laughs) <laughs> so he responded on social media saying, you know, he'd be delighted to come and visit because the town's been hit really hard by COVID, so tourism numbers are down and also it's um struggled with drought. So people in Cowra are hoping to say thank you by building a, what they're going to say is flattering, 40-metre-high statue of the Thor wow. actor in his honour. Um, I've been to Kaura a fair bit, mm. Tom, and mm, it too. is... It's a lovely place. I wouldn't say there's a huge amount going on there, but, look, locals have said that one of the things that they're going to get Chris to do is they're going to take him surfing in the dam. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that's going to work.
0: Look, um, I've, yeah, I've been to Cowra a lot um, playing footy as a kid, and, look, I wouldn't describe it as one of the most remarkable places in the Central West. <laughs> it does have the Japanese gardens, though.
3: Yeah, that's right. It does. They're lovely Um,
0: and a war memorial. I actually love that Chris Hemsworth is kind of becoming a bit of ambassador for different parts of Australia. Obviously in Byron where he built that enormous mansion and then brought heaps of film production to the area was awesome. Um, You know, I think boosted the economy there somewhat. So for him to get behind a town that's maybe not as... Cool or as sexy as Byron and lend his profile to a community like that is awesome.
3: But yeah, what's the Hemsworth effect going to do to real estate prices there? We've seen what <laughs> buy, it's doing in Byron. Bye now. All
0: right. Thanks, Katrina. We'll catch you again soon. Uh, Annex Methus is about to join you as we explain what net zero actually means.
1: Professor Will Steffen is a climate change researcher at the Australian National University and he joins us now. Will, what does net zero actually mean?
2: It means that we reach a point where any residual emissions that we make of greenhouse gases, CO2 from agriculture or something like that, that's just really hard to get out. We balance that by drawing down CO2 from the atmosphere, by growing more forests, or storing it in the soil, or things like this, or some perhaps new technologies where we capture CO2 technologically, compress it uh, into a liquid and pump it and put it down into a disused mine or something like that. So the point is, the emissions that are left over when we get most of them out must be balanced by drawing down carbon from the atmosphere and storing it away from the atmosphere. So that's what the net means. There's no net emissions because there's a balance between what goes up And what goes back down?
1: So it doesn't necessarily mean we all of a sudden won't have any coal or won't drive petrol cars. It just means that we have to offset or counter the amount we pump out by doing good things. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. But when you look at the processes and the possibility of drawing down large amounts of carbon, what it does actually imply is that, no, we will not have any more coal uh, and, no, we won't be driving petrol cars. What it means is there are some sectors of our economy that are really difficult to get the final Bit of emissions out, agriculture is one that's always pointed to. And those are the ones that are going to be left over after we pick the low hanging fruit, so to speak. And the low hanging fruit is certainly electricity. There is absolutely no reason whatsoever we should burn coal anymore because it's much cheaper and much cleaner to generate electricity with renewables. And also, electrification of transport is really moving fast. By 2030, I think we'll see more electric vehicles than we will petrol driven cars. And by 2035, the petrol-driven cars. will probably be antiques.
0: You've got the scales, right? On one side, you've got the emissions that we will still be putting out. On the other side, you've got the emissions that we will be removing from the atmosphere. On that side of the scale, removing the carbon, will that come, in our case here in Australia, from buying carbon credits from overseas, which is essentially paying other countries to take carbon out of the atmosphere?
2: No, we should do it ourselves. We've got uh, a relatively small population in a very large continent, and we have all sorts of possibilities to bring carbon down out of the atmosphere. So I think it's going to be the the smaller uh, countries with very dense populations, Singapore comes to mind, that may need to buy credits from somewhere else. But globally, uh, you're right, we are going to have to balance whatever uh, residual emissions there are with drawing down, and not necessarily country by country. It's going to have to be a global effort. We may, in fact, here in Australia, draw down more carbon than our residual emissions, uh, benefiting from other countries paying us to draw this down. But that's something that's going to be worked out uh, uh, in the longer term. I guess the reason
0: I ask that question, it always seems like a bit of a weakness to me if you could just buy carbon credits from overseas, essentially paying other countries to reduce their emissions, that it would sort of let us off the hook that rich countries like ours could keep. Yeah. Our carbon-intensive yeah. sectors going reap the revenue from it, use it to pay off other countries to reduce their emissions, and therefore we're not working as hard as we should at reducing our own emissions or finding ways to remove it ourselves.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. But when you actually look at the numbers, the magnitudes, uh, that sort of solution won't work because it's hard to draw down CO two uh, at the magnitudes that we're going to need. So we're going to need to get every bit of CO two emissions down as close to zero as we possibly can to have any chance of getting to net zero. I'd point out one other thing, too, is we have to be careful uh, about the carbon we do draw down out of the atmosphere and store. For example, if we're going to put it in forests, they are prone to burning if we can't get climate change under control. Uh, And of course, then the carbon goes right up out the spout. Uh, For example, here in uh, Australia a year and a half or so ago with the massive bushfires in Eastern Australia, they emitted uh, as much as the entire country of Australia does in an entire year. Over 500 million tons of carbon dioxide went back up uh, from the biosphere. So um, storing carbon in above-ground biomass, i.e. forests and other ecosystems, has risks. If we can't get the emissions down fast enough and we have continuing fires, we're going to lose that. So there are all sorts of risks that need to be taken into account when we talk about net zero.
1: Who will police it? You know, it's all well and good to sign up and say we agree to net zero, but who does the calculations to make sure the balance is right?
2: Well, that hopefully will be done by the conference of the parties. In fact, we're going to Glasgow in a couple of weeks, and that's an international agreement where we have to account for all of our emissions and that includes net emissions. So we also have to count for our drawdown as well. So there will be international protocols about how you do this. Uh, there will probably be international inspections too to make sure everything is going well. And just like we have to report our emissions now, year by year, and every year uh, we report our emissions to the uh, UN uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change, we'll also have to report our drawdown as well. And we have to have reliable methodologies to be able to faithfully report what actually is being drawn down out of the atmosphere.
0: Are those mechanisms solid enough, do you think?
2: Not yet. I think uh, we're going to have to do a lot more work on the accounting procedures. I don't think they're uh, quite where we need them to be yet. It's probably easier when you're growing uh, monoculture plantations, but that isn't the best way to Draw CO2 out of the atmosphere. Complex ecosystems are more resilient, and they give you other side benefits in terms of biodiversity preservation and so on. But those are harder to actually measure. The carbon, soil carbon in general, is harder to measure than above-ground carbon that is stored in the trunks and leaves of trees and so on. Uh, we're getting better at that stuff, but uh, but uh, soil is going to be one I think needs a bit more work.
0: So, Will, how do we get to this point where the whole world is talking about net zero and agreeing that that's essentially what we should aim for? And do you think it's the, the right way to be looking at this problem? I mean, as you've said before, removing carbon from the atmosphere is so difficult that the main game really is about reducing our carbon emissions, yet the focus is on this net zero target, which necessarily includes the, the removal of carbon. So, is it the right way to be looking at it? And how do we get to this point?
2: Well, I think that's a really good question because it does leave countries with a way out of continuing significant amount of emissions. The real issue we have, and I think this is what you're pointing to quite appropriately, is that uh, we don't yet have the technologies and methodologies in place for removal of significant amounts of carbon. So this is sort of a a pie in the sky pledge when countries say, oh, we'll reach net zero by 2050. 2050 is nearly three decades down the track and we don't have the technologies yet to remove carbon and store it safely at the rates we need to do.
0: Which is one half Uh, of the whole equation,
2: right? Absolutely. So my point is usually net zero, well, that's a pretty weak pledge. What we really need to find out is how fast you're going to remove emissions full stop. Don't talk about drawdown, the actual emissions. And really we should be focusing on 2030. If we don't get real absolute emissions down by at least half by 2030, we're going to be in deep trouble in terms of meeting the Paris climate goals. So that's really where the action is. It's on 2030 and it's not about net zero. It's about getting real honest emissions down to at least 50% uh, of their current levels.
1: You talked about some of the sectors that are going to be most responsible for driving down emissions. How do you make sure it's fair and all sectors have the same economic hit?
2: One way that it is fair is if you put a price on the emission of carbon. So an emission of one tonne of carbon or one tonne of carbon dioxide, however you want to measure it, uh, no matter where it comes from, costs the same amount of money in terms of a carbon price. So that's one way you can do it. I think you need to have a a sophisticated approach, though, in in which you really focus on those sectors which can get emissions down very fast and can get them down at less cost in terms of uh, what we have at our disposal now technologically. That immediately points toward the electricity sector. Where we know for certain that here in Australia, we can get to zero emissions from the electricity sector easily by 2030, and we'll probably drop electricity prices in doing so because renewables are so cheap. Building new renewables now is cheaper than keeping existing fossil fuel power plants going.
0: Is the price on carbon basically a mechanism that is meant to determine where it's most cost effective to reduce our emissions from?
2: Well, that's what economists uh, tell me is that if you put a, a sort of a whole of economy price on carbon emissions, obviously the ones that are going to go down fastest are the ones that have alternatives that can get that cost out of their business as fast as possible. And the electricity sector is a good example. And that's that's happening already, even without a carbon price, because it's so economically advantageous to go towards renewables. I think transport's an interesting sector where a carbon price could have. A really big impact. Whereas we start bringing in electric vehicles, we're a bit of a laggard. Other countries in Europe and U.S. are moving faster on electric vehicles than we are. But if you see then a higher price on petrol, that's more of an incentive to go to electric vehicles, particularly when the cost of electricity is dropping. So um, it's gonna be an interesting journey as we get carbon out of our societies and our economies, how people adjust and how clever we are in in adapting and uh, grabbing the beneficial, Uh, there are quite a few beneficial societal uh, outcomes from getting emissions out of our societies.
0: That was Professor Will Steffen, climate change researcher at the Australian National University. And it was interesting, Annika, that he said, Removing carbon from the atmosphere will be a tiny part of the solution compared to the work that needs to be done to reduce our emissions. But it is the the both sides of the scale, the net zero, that has been the concept that the world leaders seem to have been able to agree on. But I do wonder if it lets big emitting countries off the hook in the shorter term. We can talk about net zero out into the future But the main game is reducing emissions as soon as possible, i.e. by 2030, and our government isn't committing to increasing their ambition there, but so many other countries really are, and potentially that's what's going to be the real sticking point at Glasgow.
1: I guess that's where the price comes in. If you're putting it out there, it's got to be worthwhile to then remove. I sort of think of it as an oil spill into the ocean you've got to get it out at some stage so you would have to think eventually the counter will flip and as you say we will actually want to reduce more than remove it perhaps provides a mechanism to do it more gradually and as you say maybe lets them off the hook but it's also probably a reality that these are the economies we've built up for hundreds of years Mm -hmm. now and it's going to take a while to turn this around.
0: Tomorrow on The Briefing, you might have seen um, in your feed the story about the billboards in Times Square that are really taking the piss out of our politicians for not doing enough on climate change. Uh, We're going to speak to the comedian who raised the money and made that happen.
2: Listener.